0: Hello, this is Christopher Long, and you're listening to The Digital Dialogue, a podcast dedicated to cultivating the excellences of dialogue in a digital age. This is episode 64, and today I'm joined by John Lysiker, professor of philosophy and director of graduate studies at Emory University. John's research focuses on philosophical psychology, aesthetics, social and political philosophy, and 19th and 20th century continental and American philosophy. He has numerous publications in these areas, including two monographs. His first, You Must Change Your Life, Poetry, and the Birth of Sense, was published in 2002 by Penn State University Press. And his second, Emerson and Self-Culture, was published in 2008 by Indiana University Press. John has been a steady guest on the Digital Dialogue, appearing in episode 16. To discuss his book on Emerson and self-culture, and then we did a flipped episode of the Digital Dialogue, episode 48, where he actually interviewed me about my Aristotle book. Excellent. Yeah, uh, uh, thank you. At, in Utah. And Utah, right, where he also generously served uh, on the panel that discussed that book. So today we're actually here at Emory University uh, in Atlanta to talk uh, to John about a book project of his on philosophical writing. And uh, I'm really glad to have an opportunity again, John, to have a conversation with you about your work and our, our, uh, you know, some of the ways our work resonates with with one another. So welcome to the Digital Dialogue.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm excited too. So you're obviously um, as invested uh, as I am in really thinking philosophically about philosophical writing and seeing where that can go. And I think where we really come together is in thinking about philosophical writing as a personal, interpersonal, and social activity rather than just as a sort of differential semiotic field, which I right. think is part of the ways in which, through Derrida, writing was thematized by the 68 uh, French generation. Right. And, and we're back into the sphere of writing is this activity we're involved in, right. What's going to be the best way for me to philosophize in a written way? Right. And, you know, that's not, it seems to me, a question that lots of people raise, sometimes through the pressures of academic careers. Right. Uh, sometimes, you know, just because it hasn't it hasn't really dawned upon right. me. So, I
0: mean, one of the things that you bring up, and I want you to sort of give a kind of sense for where this project came from and, how, and, and your, and your uh, sort of progress through it. But, I mean, there is a sense that you bring up in, in the things that I've looked at in relation to the project about a kind of the, 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 the way in which the profession forces you know, what counts as legitimate philosophical writing into a certain kind of uh, genre, namely the genre of the journal article, um, of course, m- books uh, have potentially more uh, b- room to, to become different than that. Uh, right. But of course, if you're going to place them at a significant place, they have to do certain kinds of things. Right. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about the project, but also about this, I'm really interested in what you bring up at the beginning here, of writing as a
1: philosophical activity. Sure. Um, yeah. So, I mean, part of it is you notice who do you like reading the most <laughs> right. uh, and you know for me that's uh, Emerson Nietzsche Adorno um, Heidegger Plato you know you, I find myself yeah. Wittgenstein uh, Rigori, yeah. uh Thoreau Du Bois people who you just realize wow I'd rather read these texts right now, is that just because they're more pleasurable? They sort of fuel uh, a kind of hermeneutic desire? Well, sure, up to a certain point. But I also just trying to come to terms with why do I think there's something more philosophically vibrant right. about those works than the ways in which most of philosophy is published? Secondly, I don't think I'm unique in that. I don't think people got into philosophy to write journal articles. <laughs> <laughs> I think they hoped to write something like Pascal's Pensée, or you know, to write like Nietzsche, or to write a dialogue. You know, their initial thought was being a philosopher was someone who presented their thoughts in really rich, engaging ways. Right. And then the last thing uh, is, on the one hand, we, we do have this social habit, which is journals want. Uh, articles that are contributions to professional discussions and they have to use extant terms of professional discussions and usually build upon a, a literature review and they show how they're a contribution to a certain kind of literature and that's that's valuable work certainly and it fits the current university idea that universities produce knowledge right. and there's an accumulation of knowledge which can be sort of demonstrated by an accumulation of articles. Mm-hmm. Like, somehow in philosophy, each new article could stand atop the other, and that would right. symbolize the accumulation of knowledge. But uh, it's not clear to me, A, that's exactly the way philosophy works. You know, That's sort of a conservative way to think about philosophical thought. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really allow for people to... Experiment with the terms of the debate right. or invent new ones. Right. And I've encountered this in my own career where I decided to write in certain ways where, say, I bury the lit review in footnotes. Mm-hmm. And then I'm told I didn't engage the literature. Mm-hmm. And I'm asked to put that at the front of the article. Right. And then I said, no. Mm-hmm. That's not what I want to put at the front of the article is an attempt to establish a mood, a stimmung, right. and show that an overall ethos is what's really at stake here. Right. Not scoring points in a conversation, even though I would situate myself in that conversation along the way. Right. And I remember this exchange with the editor. It's like, well, you kind of have to decide you know, what you want to do. And I said, well, you also have to decide what kind of philosophy you want to publish. Right. Whether or not The only space for philosophy in this journal is the professional article. So I find it too conservative. I also think it's just, its prevalence is just conformism. It's not like people have really thought about it and said, this is really the best way in which philosophy right. should reproduce itself. But,
0: I mean, I wonder, I mean, in, in this regard, it seems to me one of the things that resonates with what you're saying, and it also resonates with my own work, is the performative dimension of writing. Right. What, and, and the connection yeah. between form and content. right? You, we can, I mean, I think we agree you can't divorce form from content. Something important about the philosophical content of your work is... Uh, shown in the form that your work takes, right? right. We see that, I mean, the, the part of the, my main argument about Plato is that, you know, he, he had to write in dialogues for very important philosophical reasons. Okay. Um, but what, so then put, bringing that to the question of the, jur- the form yeah. of the journal article, right, it is performing a kind of philosophy. And as you're saying, it's a performing a kind of very um, conservative View of philosophy, I think one in which um, certain ways of referring to the past or to previous literature is accepted, but other ways are not. Right, right. Um, Which I mean, so some. I think we we both can agree that engaging one's predecessors, be they remote predecessors like ancient thinkers or relatively recent ones like, namely, people who published recently, is important. Absolutely. In fact, we all philosophize in a context in which those voices have to be responded to. Absolutely. Um, uh,
1: So, I mean, I think it's... But yeah, it's partly whether that context sort of sets the overwhelming or overarching tone of the writing, Mm -hmm. such that the idea is, my goal is to make a contribution to this context Mm -hmm. and advance knowledge. Mm -hmm. And that's really my aim. So, you know, coming back to your point about thinking about writing as a practice, yeah. as an activity, what's my aim? It's to contribute to this literature. I mean, I hadn't thought about it before, but just thinking with you, you know, McIntyre yeah. uh, in three rival versions of Moral Inquiry talks about the encyclopedic tradition. And there's a way in which the professional article are continual revisions of encyclopedia articles, mm-hmm. which eventually may complete the project of knowledge. Right. You know, this idea like knowledge is advancing and... You know, Encyclopedia Britannica used to have, like, its yearbook. Yeah. And the idea was those were supplements. Right. Those were the advances of knowledge. And there's a way in which um, that, (coughs) excuse me, is part of the overarching shape of the professional article. But I have other aims. Yeah. Um, And I think you have other aims. Um, My aims include... uh, Relations to myself about mm-hmm. clarifying my own thoughts mm-hmm. transforming my own thoughts right uh i have aims relative to readers stimulating their own thoughts provoking um, them, yeah. um yeah provoking right. them right. uh challenging them right and i'm not you know and giving them ones to try out right which they could accept or reject right. Right. uh i also have some social aims i think our nation is stupid I think it's embarrassingly anti-intellectual. Mm-hmm. I think the crisis of the public intellectual is a social fact that can't simply be explained by pretentious academics, although there are many. Right? I mean, right. we have a we have a seriously impoverished discursive present. Um, so there are lots of aims one has, right. and those aims might become more important in leading me to write in a certain way. Right. And if those aims somehow pull me outside of a contribution to a a conversation of experts. I think that still has to be a legitimate move in philosophy. Yeah. And I think the overwhelming history of philosophy is not about contributions to the profession.
0: Well, I mean, you do a nice job at least at the beginning of what I've read and I know these are the, you know, I've looked at the first few chapters and dra- the drafty drafts which you've written all over as drafty drafts with good we, we won't mistake them for that. <laughs> um, and uh, is is all, I mean an indication of I mean you you sort of made a couple statements about the journal article, but of course that's not a that's a relatively new <laughs> a format for Absolutely. philosophical expression. Um, one that I think you know we could probably also talk about in terms of with emergence of a, a digital world is transforming as we speak, but we could talk further about that later. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Be- because what I want to push on is just the diversity of Philosophical genres. I mean, you point to aphorisms. You point to the philosophical essays, Montaigne, uh, Emerson. I think Heidegger, in a way, is doing the same kinds of things, where you, he's bringing always bringing you from one place to an, to another. By the yeah. end of that essay, yeah, yeah. And and I think you know no no. Um, mistake with regard to Heidegger that he, you know, wrote essays and the sure. philosophical lecture. Obviously, the you know published lecture is right. a the genre that Heidegger, yeah, uh, and address an address. You know, exactly. there's
1: a 19th century tradition right. there. The dialogue, dialogue, right? Uh, fragments. Um, I'm actually just looking at notes. That's good. Uh, autobiography. Yeah, interesting. Sure. Right,
0: but so I mean, if we have it,
1: if letters, we have an, novels, if we have an
0: <laughs> impoverished. View of philosophy rather than the expansive one that blurs the boundary between philosophy and literature and other things, then we're gonna be, then we're gonna be stuck in some, a very boring discussion of what counts as real philosophy and what isn't and what doesn't. Um, Even when you look at, for example, something, I mean, I think there's a really interesting transition to be talked about with regard to Plato and Aristotle. So that right. Aristotle is often thought of as this kind of <coughs> systematic thinker who has, you know, the father, the father of the treatise. Right. And in fact, I mean, you know, I think what what we're seeing are, you know, teaching notes that have been sure. fleshed out to some degree, um, and that is, I mean, Aristotle. If you don't read Aristotle's work words as a thinking on the way, then right. you're going to be uh, perennially frustrated by, you know, contradictions and other kinds of things that you see in the in the text, rather than saying, okay, let him take me on on a journey. Right, and I think one of the things that's you know really valuable about this um, taxonomy of different kinds of philosophical writing—if it even—if it even consolidates into a taxonomy—I sure—is um, yeah, that you know we're talking about um, genres. I think, for me, let me put it that way: the most compelling genres are genres that recognize the dynamic nature of thinking. Right. And the dynamic nature of philosophical activity, and so when we when we have things that sort of present themselves as completed treatises that are sort of put in front of one, spoken in the first person, there may be some reasons to do something like that. Right. But you know, certainly that you know that that feeds into a vision of philosophy as systematic,
1: complete, uh, total totalizing in a certain kind sure. Of sense. Sure. Right? Yeah, and. So, uh, two thoughts. So, uh, starting with where we where you finished, I think for me, one way to get the ball rolling is to think about the various relationships we're involved in when we write. Uh, so, the dynamism of thinking can be in in our own thought, but also the dynamism of the thinking of the one who receives it. Right. And I do think that. The systematic treatise sometimes is trying to
0: conclude
1: thought for the reader. Yeah, right. Uh, Whereas the essay or the dialogue or the aphorism or the fragment is trying to uh, stimulate and facilitate thought, which will um, occur in the reader, but must be carried on by the reader. Right. Uh, And so... The, uh, whatever conversation is opened is not resolved right. by some of these more uh, dynamic forms.
0: So let me pause there for a second. Because so I mean you're focusing on writing. In fact, you you uh, you know you talk about um, this. Uh as a descriptive phenomenology of writing in part as what you're,
1: uh, what you're Yeah, writing. I was just sort exactly. of like the first person Great. second person to mention right. yeah. So
0: right. I guess a que- one question I have so w- with regard to this latest project I'm working on on Platonic and Socratic politics the subtitle of that is um, yeah, yeah. Practicing a Politics of Reading Sure uh, In part because I'm trying to use the digital to engage readers in, in a way that it w- wasn't really possible in a paper manuscript world, we'll see how successful but uh, w- what's the point of What's the point of, um, of focusing on writing versus reading? I mean, obviously they're bound up with one another. Yeah, I guess um, because you just were mentioning here, there's the certain kinds of um, writings that you were affirming—the aphorism, the essay—is yeah. is, is about, in part, as well as a relationship to self and everything right. else. Right. Okay. Uh, a certain response to reading, a uh, reader's, sure. A certain imagined reader in mind who you're engaged, yeah. In, right. Bringing right. along,
1: inviting, and yeah rather than positing and you know, sure. preaching to right and uh, and there may be political goals there yeah there, there will be yeah. there will be social psychological presumptions right about how meaning occurs right uh, so for all, all good Aristotelians no no sense of the good can proceed without some kind of moral psychology grounded in the actual right um, so yeah so I'm interested in this descriptive phenomenology and I do put it in terms of writing because I want to open up a deliberative space in which we can consider how we write. Yeah. And in that deliberative space, we are not trapped by the default of the professional article. Right. And we're now able to think richly about, as you rightly pointed out, the really varied and powerful tradition of possibilities yeah. that's actually there in the history of philosophy.
0: So so let me just pause there. So, so part of your project is a kind of critique of the, the, the professional journal article and a certain kind of critique of a view of professional philosophy that is... Yeah, I'm struggling with that. Okay.
1: Just because as, as soon as you're polemical, that's all anyone will do and right. get defensive. So that could... That, that will you be were part of it. to
0: eclipse the, your other... Po- I think you're more interested in this other... Po- yeah, po- I just want to open some space. Yeah,
1: okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, it may be a few cheap rabbit punches <laughs> <in> that, <laughs> and then move along. So then, yeah. once I'm trying to get into this deliberative space, the question is, what do you need to think about in order to be... Uh, uh, to deliberate adequately yeah. and for me when I read the ethics and we've talked about this yeah. before Aristotle yeah, yeah. The, the virtues of character all refer to what he believes are constitutive domains of our energy mm-hmm. you want to thrive as a human being you got to learn to deal with money Mm-hmm. You've got to learn to deal with fear. You've right. got to learn to deal with pleasure. Right. You've got to learn to deal with power. You have to <laughs> learn to deal with informal sociality and non-erotic love, right. And friendship. Right. right? Mm-hmm. So each of these are a kind of axis of our energeia. that anyone who's going to think, how should I right, succeed right. as a human being right. and bring my life in accord with the Logos... Right. You can't answer that until you sort of see what are you involved in. Right. What are the dimensions of your being that need to be brought into accord with the logos? Mm -hmm. So I view each of the virtues of character as running atop of a kind of descriptive social phenomenology of our uh, being at work, sex, language. Right. Um, So I'm the same thing. I'm interested in that for reading. Okay. I mean, sorry, for writing. Right.
0: right. Okay, I was going to say, wait.
1: Now, I am also interested in that for reading, but I think... So, for, for me to be a writer, I have to have a sense of a reader. Right. Uh, and that's both a social psychological anticipation, but it's also an ethical yeah. anticipation. So, I'm so, not, I'm, so in yeah. other words, I have to think about what reading means right. as I deliberate about how to write. You can't separate those out. Right. So uh, It's just... It's just moronic. That's right. like, you know, the, the last thing I'll say about this is, you, right. know, you know, that's like, uh, well, anyway, I'll just stop there. Okay. Like, but, I mean, okay, is is
0: there a problem here? Uh, just let me be provocative for a second. Right? Is there an issue of... Damn, you. damn uh, Is there, I mean, aren't, aren't you just... You know the hegemony of the author, the centrality of the author. I mean, is the focus on reading? I'm writing. I say it myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. It's the, other, the, hegemony of, the hegemony. of, of. the, the, the non. Some Freudian thing is the coming in. Hegemite. Us, right. Um, uh, yeah,
1: it well, looks like biblical villains. The Hegemites. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they come.
0: Uh, are, so I mean, it, what would be a kind of response to that? Obviously, your 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 discussion of writing here is. T- attuned to the conditions under which we might become good writers what a right. good writer might be in a similar way to the way we might live a good life in Aristotle sure. Marcus, right um, uh, so what would you say about the, you know, yeah, that yeah I effort? don't uh,
1: there's sort of the, the that I, I would say there's nothing in what I'm saying which necessitates me uh let me give it a So some people worry about auteur criticism in film because they act like the director's doing all the work when it's not happening. Uh-huh. And so if we only think about the phenomenon of film in terms of director's choices, we lose a lot of production and right. we lose a lot on the side of reception. Mm-hmm. So uh, I hear what you're saying is you're just focusing on what the writer's thinking about in the deliberative moment. We're losing a huge chunk of how philosophy happens. Because the event of philosophy is dialogical right and dynamic. Yeah. And I'm, I'm in complete agreement with right. That. And I think any reflective frenetic writer has to acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, that said, for me, and I have to take a step back to my worry about the writing is just a differential semiotic system. Yeah, that, that's true. Uh, but th- that fact doesn't alleviate, for us, the question: How should I write? Yeah. And I think Emerson's so great on this, with this question of the conduct of life, in the beginning of fate. What he says is, I can't theoretically resolve the question of my fate, because fate is what is opaque to me. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is, I find myself surrounded by opacity that's determinant of my life. So, he says, the question of fate resolves into a question of the conduct of life. Right. And I take that to mean those opacities now don't become just theoretical problems that my explanatory powers run up against. They've now become problems of practical philosophy because I have to deal with them. Right. As I live my life, I'm going to have to deal with them, another line, you know, as I find them in my way, right. which is such a great phrase because yeah. it means both my hermeneutic access to it but right. also they're in my way <laughs> right, right. and i trip over them or they yeah. bonk me on the head right so i'm looking at writing only to render more salient and hopefully rich a question of praxis yeah that everyone i yeah. think has to go through right and so my way of saying is you could go you could deal with the question of writing philosophical writing as a praxis in a way that was smarter or dumber right Right. and the smarter one will have to realize that i can't complete this thought for my reader right and there's something weird about keeping on trying to do so right but i may be able adopt a different relation to my reader and i will try to argue some that a, a, a smarter deliberator yeah. In the moment of writing, will acknowledge those things. Well, so partly, I just, I want to keep open and dynamic a kind of existential question. Yeah. And this is part of the, for me, I find the sort of paradox of one aspect of my thought, given present dispositions, is I have a thoroughly uh, relational anarchic ontology, mm-hmm. Uh But I don't think that precludes the same kind of utterly arresting questions that the existentialists wanted to ask. Mm -hmm. We used to just think the arresting questions of the existentialists had to do with the solitary ego in the privacy of its own chambers. (laughs) I have a thoroughly relational anarchic ontology, but the question of the conduct of my life, nevertheless individuates me and functions a little like a call of conscience and things mm-hmm. of that nature. And so I want people to oh, I want to write a book which makes people say I don't really know how I'm writing. Mm-hmm. I've just been a conformist. Yeah. I you know I've, well, I have the cardinal vice of yeah. Emersonian thought is I've been an unwitting conformist. <laughs> nice. So I mean there is a sense in which if we if we if we, yeah. if
0: we parse it out this way and, and think of writing really as a praxis and think of philosophy as a as a kind of practice, Philosophy the 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 the, the the philosophical activity par excellence in a way is writing right in, in a certain way right
1: i mean now that's I th- one of my arguments in the early chapters like okay. we valorize socrates right um, but because we write. think it's dialogue right. Right. but everyone else writes well but actually this is the
0: point that i would what i would, which is the, actually the central distinction in my aristotle okay. plato book which is that socrates chose not to write for good philosophical reasons plato yes. chose to write Socrates made beautiful and new right. for good philosophical, philosophical reasons, and that, partly I think those reasons are the the scope that uh, Plato has access to, namely intergenerational an intergenerational public that Socrates would not have had access to had he had had there been no writing. Right. So- obviously Xenophon and other people wrote about him, but they're not compelling. In the they didn't have the genius of, of Plato to write in right. a way that is compelling us readers to engage in the similar kinds of things that Socrates is trying to get his interlocutors to engage in. So what Pla- I argue that what Plato <coughs> is try- trying to do is turn us readers yeah. toward the questions of the good and the just absolutely. and the beautiful and orient our collaborative reading of his text toward those ideas. Yeah. And the writing, of course, that comes out of that should be informed by
1: that orientation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that... Uh and I like that, by the way. So no, it's on get, tape. We're so that's give good. A little, All right, that's good. That was good. The uh, so <clears throat> um, yeah, I, so I'm uh, all I was trying to get at was most people have maybe not for as good philosophical reasons have fallen on the side of writing, yeah, as opposed to just conversation. Right. Although we all know that's kind of slippery because you and I are conversing. Right. It's going to show up as a text in some way. Well, well, I mean,
0: I think this was one of the things in talking about podcasting that I chose to podcast because I think the verbal exchange allows for a playfulness and a dynamic creativity that is um valuable and enriching but it's enriching it's enriching in and of itself and some of the conversations i've had on the digital dialogue and even with you have been some of the best philosophical conversations i've had in my career partly because we have a public that's here and not here with regard right. to this microphone yeah. but also um it's informed my writing and so i would say that those conversations apart from the just the rec- the digital recordings yeah. of yeah. them and that's why I'm yeah, so excited it, yeah, about exactly this, this book, actually, yeah. is because the book it, <coughs> it recognizes that, and I'm trying to embed the podcast in the book, uh, some of them, because I recognize that the book emerged from these conversations. Yeah. And that, and I chose the conversations for probably, in, in a way, Socratic reasons of having a playfulness, being able to provoke, being able to not try ideas that aren't going to get directly quoted without you know easily sure. you know yeah, yeah. um it doesn't have what writing brings is a certain static nature um a certain kind of uh, permanence that the in- interactions of the verbal don't have although when we record them they gain right so and i think there's so what i would argue with regard to plato is that those are valuable things namely we have a socrates Who's a, a significant philosophical figure because
1: Plato decided to write, and the permanence right. of the writing yeah, is yeah. valuable. No, I agree. So it's interesting. I was thinking then if, if the worry in the Phaedrus, and you know, I'm always on rookie ter- terrain yeah, when yeah, I go into yeah, Greek talk, thought, uh, but um, you know, is that the text can't talk back? But what you're saying is, yeah, but it also never shuts up. Yeah, it never but shuts up. And it's also always it, there. But
0: that's the provocation to us as readers. That's a Absolutely. strategy
1: that Plato is using, a writing strategy.
0: It's part of what I call the topography, the, the place of platonic writing. Right. So close post-grafting. graphing uh, is... That requires us as readers to take become yeah. active, because Absolutely. it's the reader who makes the text meaningful. In addition,
1: it's in the dialogue.
0: With I'm, the I'm with you. Yeah. So, but, but. so when
1: you said requires, yeah,
0: okay, invites. Let me say invites. Well, but
1: right, no, that's good. I don't know. But both. Okay, I mean, all. it depends. Like, right. um, it invites, but in a way, but. Like, if you're going to take it seriously. So it's yeah, an invitation but, right. you can say no to.
0: And there are habits you have to cultivate as a reader. But let me also exactly. say, in a way that a treatise doesn't necessarily invite you to, right? A treatise is telling. You know what, I mean, right?
1: Yeah, well, like and it, some it, of them are... Like, a certain kind they of... They have a tone of, like, of yeah, any and all rational right. beings would have assented. Right. So right. You, your space it's for like, disagreement <laughs> is, <laughs> I'm with the irrational dudes. <laughs> right. uh, exactly. So... Uh, <laughs> Notice that you were attributing to Plato a decision, a choice. Yeah. And I'm not accusing you of valorizing authorial mastery. Why not? <laughs> <laughs> because I think those that's part of the But you the mean the gamble, me? the venture, yeah, the praxis of of writing. Yeah. is that it, it throws itself out into the world and does what it can to reform fate. Yeah. Uh, towards certain ends right
0: right. as soon as you make mark whether it be a typing on a screen or a a writing on a page whatever you're you're do you're actively doing something
1: right you are actively doing something and hopefully with aim or purpose yeah Uh, And and with cultivated habits that are and with consequences
0: right and uh but when you pick up a book yeah and read like what would what would happen if we shifted it and said, oh, "Well, I'm the f- philosophical activity is not anything about writing; it's really about reading."
1: Yeah, but see that I don't.
2: I'm not saying really I agree with it. I'm wondering. It's the really there. Yeah,
1: the really. I slipped that one in. I mean, you did. <laughs> I mean, it's the task. Yes, how to read. I could write another book. This is going to be a about poem. how to read. Yeah, and I would talk about different modes of reading. Yeah, and my Emerson book is begins with this question. And I say, don't read like a historicist, because you're actually not reading Emerson. Uh-huh. And the reason you're not reading Emerson is there's there are a set of performative moments there, which require us to respond in our factical singularity. Right. And so I call it taking Emerson personal. Yeah, it's not because I like to talk about myself or <laughs> you know I want to go back to what it's like to be a teenager. That is actually respecting. The objectivity of Emerson's text, because that is what the text is asking of us. Right. So, I'm with you on this. Yeah. And but so in that but case, but that's a choice, so, though. That's my little existentialist moment that a reader faces when they have a book. You're like, how am I going to take this up? Yeah, but you're in that context. What you're really suggesting, in a way, is that
0: writing is reading. I mean, in the sense that you, your writing is a
1: reading of that text.
0: Right, I mean, you
1: you can you. N- sure. not, not exclusive. There are there are yeah, smart books help readers read them. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, but I do think I, part of it is for me. This is sort of like just thinking about the drama of human existence. There are those moments where we're asking, "How should I write?" And that's I want to spend some time in that moment. Right. There are moments where we're gonna, like, "How should I read?" Yeah. And. Uh, when I wrote You Must Change Your Life, my worry was people who were doing cognitive science accounts of aesthetic responses. It's like, yeah, you know, it dawned on me what they were doing is they didn't want to grapple with the address of the work. Right. They wanted to explain it, but it was a way of removing themselves from the challenge of the work and actually avoiding it. And so I'm willing to say in public, in a podcast, in a podcast. that the cogsci revolution in the humanities is a flight from the challenge posed by the text that it reads and the challenge in general that works of our to culture because it just says i don't want to talk to you i want to explain you yeah so i'm with you i mean yeah, for yeah. me how to read has become it has been a prologue right i've tried to justify how i'm reading in my first two books and now I'm sort of working on the other side. But I'm with you. They're mutually implicated. Yeah. Because part of how I think you answer, how should I read, has to do with, well, how was this written? Yeah. What does right. this call for? Exactly. And how should I write has to be tied to, well, what, what, what kind of readers do I want? I, am, am I trying writing. to solicit? Right. Solicit. and Right.
0: But I mean, so I mean, you, getting I, back to this point about <laughs> about Plato, I mean, I don't think I need to make a I don't think I need to make a definitive claim about you know Plato's intentions or anything like that. I mean, I think you, I could appeal just to the Platonic texts as we have them, whether they were exactly as Plato intended them to be had or whatever, and saying you know th- there they are, and Here, they, here's and what we have. Here's what we have, yeah. and and they invite us uh, to. Um, in, be engaged to actively engage with them. If you take seriously the notion that they are written to as philosophical provocations sure. to into in, invite a response to the kinds of questions that Socrates was um, also inviting his interlocutors yeah, to yeah, consider. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, when the further argument is that that's a political activity. that that that, that writing and that reading. Is political activity that has not exclusively political, but also political, yeah, no, capable I, of building community, capable of orienting community around it, something. It occurs in in
1: a polis loosely construed, right, right. and it has consequences for the polis. Right. In so maybe which it f- place. fill that out
0: in terms of your own work here on writing, because sure. you talk about the social political dimensions of writing.
1: Yeah. So if, so we have to go back to this sort of descriptive phenomenology, yeah. uh, and. I, I, I do, quick, just want to say that mm-hmm. um, I think part of this is what's at stake in a term like invitation yeah. versus command, right? Or but versus I mean, provocation. provocation, like different. Yeah. yeah well, so these are there's a second person dimension, yeah. uh, an intersubjective dimension. There's right. a relation to an address A, and different works have different uh, right. relations, and it's interesting. I don't. Know, I haven't decided in my mind how much you can say, how confidently you can claim a given uh, genre of necessity is inviting or commanding. Right.
0: The, I mean, there, there. I think you're that gets complicated.
1: Sermon, tone. Yeah, and it may shift. Because I could imagine there may be there may be more or, or less inviting dialogues.
0: Yeah, and exactly.
1: And ironically, I think, aphorisms are somewhat commanding yeah because of these oracular pronouncements Right, right you know, like right but their so.
0: fragmentary dimension in is inviting right so yeah. that they're in well well maybe. depending on
1: what they are Yeah, no, mean, you be. know yeah.
0: right so the, these oracular pronouncements are sort of Fully formed and complete upon delivery, <laughs> right? But there are other kinds of fragments that are, um, you know, open ended, inviting, and, and right that require your activity. Exactly, activity yeah. to complete. Those might be beguiling,
1: you know. So yeah. sure, these oh, things, things have going a whole, on. We could you know, in complete you know, a social, whole topography yeah. of different Absolutely. kinds of aphorisms. and then we'd have arguments in between, right, exactly. you know, and we'd have a whole career in professional journals right. about like, <laughs> <Right.
2: yeah. laughs>
1: what's beguiling about Long's <laughs> beguiling thesis? Exactly, but uh. So anyway, sorry, you were asking about the, uh, so I, I have this, I'm trying to work out this sort of um, fundament, fundamental and the smallest possible yeah. font, but this sort of descriptive phenomenological account right. of writing in the world, right. all the modalities of relations, that if someone were to deliberate about writing, they should take into account. Um I think one is a self-relation, one is clearly a relation to uh, another. A third would be a relation to the subject matter. Yeah. These are the three cardinal dimensions of a speech act. Right. Um, uh, expressive, elocutionary, uh, and assertoric. Right. Um, but also, another one is there's a stance towards a kind of situation. And I got this from reading uh, uh, Walter Benjamin in yeah. One Way Street. Uh, and his claim that part of One Way Street is an effort to be equal to the moment, which is such a provocative thought. Like, what's the moment? Right. The moment's not the subject matter that he's talking about, right. the moment's not his addressee, and the moment is not simply him and his thought as he's trying to bring it forth in a certain way. Right. So I think that we have some fourth thing at least going on there. Um, and I don't know how far I'm going to enumerate this list of the, <laughs> right. the uh, not-so-fundamental ontology right. of, of writing. So, I
0: mean, the phenomenology, the descriptive phenomenology has to be open enough sure. so that you can yeah. read descriptions that have to
1: be possible. Yeah, so and instead of saying it's concluded, you just <laughs> say, as far as I can tell, all of these are essential. Yeah. Which and and not reducible to any mm-hmm. of the others. So, but okay. But, so let me. Yeah, I'll get to the political that, right, thing. Right, right. So okay. Okay. This idea of equal to the moment is a sense of the situation and what it calls for, mm-hmm. and that means I'm not just related to readers in their isolation. You know, the the person on the other side of the, the cup with the string as right. we work back and forth. Uh, the it also means I'm I'm trying to deal. As a writer, with the overall context, the forces which are over determining right. how texts and, and readers, and, and writers and readers hook up, and
0: to, and 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 which are for you as a writer unknown. So, the, one of the powerful things I think about,
1: incompletely known. In, well, okay, incompletely, but somewhat known, but like because Benjamin says like, he's writing at a time where he thinks there's a a crisis in experience. Yeah, so people are are, are having. S- their, their experience is so schematized right. that they're not having a genuine erfahrung, right? They're not right. being taken anywhere, right? And simultaneously, right? This idea that we're, we've been pre-schematized yeah. is tied to the convictions we have. But so, uh, yes, I mean, what I want to say is our intervention as writers is not just into something completely unknown. Right. It's driven by the a, a sense we have not just of the social psychology of the reader but of the general milieu and context yes so, but, there, but the only when,
0: reason why I, I hesitate there is because think <laughs> about somebody like Plato. Plato's not writing for me I mean in, in, for me in, in, a, in a modern you know, 21st century world and yet he is in the sense that the text has has come to me in a way that is, that is insistently yes. in, you know, um, important and, and, and timely right timely, yes. despite the fact that it was written so long ago. I so, know, uh, yeah. all I'm saying is, I agree with you that incompletely known, I'm I'm fair to go okay. with that, because completely unknown is ridiculous. I mean, right. nothing's good. He was writing for other human beings,
1: and he has a sense of other human well, beings. Well, but let me, yeah, so, let me, because uh, this is actually leading me to rethink some things I thought were settled, so I'm very appreciative okay. of this. Uh, poet I love, uh, uh, Osip Mandelstam, Russian poet, famous essay, 1916, on the secret addressé. Uh-huh. And, you know, this is what Ceylon's thinking about when he says the, the poem is a, a letter in a bottle. And Mandelstam says, you're not really writing for any particular contemporary. You're writing for the secret addresé. Yeah. And you don't know who they are. And they're going to pick it up at some time. And what he has in mind there is on exactly the phenomenon you're talking about. Uh-huh. Is you don't even know because right. Mandelstam felt like he was the secret addressee of Dante <laughs> I see you know so who's super important for him right Dante Dante could not have anticipated knowing <laughs> or planned to write for Oset Mandelstam which I is did. what you're saying right right exactly um, now right. it also turns out though that in order to have that view you have to have a sense of what is the space in which Dante and Mandelstam can meet each other right and I try to fuss with this in my Emerson book because I pose the same question. Like, how am I the secret addressee of Emerson without him right. utterly incalculable to have written for me? Right, And yet, he's addressing me in my singularity as a person. Just like Plato's saying, what the hell is your sense of the good life? Right. Right. Um, so, Mommelstam has this kind of sense of world culture. Now, what I kind of want to say is, you can go that way. You can go complete trans-historical world culture. Yeah, um, that starts to run the risk of the abstract. Yeah, uh, subject of humanity or the public use of reason. Right. So what I'm starting to think, just as we're talking about this, is maybe there's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. So I've been teaching the Republic, hopefully with some relation to the text. <laughs> uh, and, and man, is there a throwdown with Homer through that whole book? Right, right. I mean, there is a massive contestation, which right. is very present and current. Yeah. You know, Pole Marcus, he's quoting Simonides right, right. off the bat. Right, right. You know, and, and it turns out in these plays, with it, you know, he's an inheritor of his father's argument, yeah, but they're yeah. both actually children of Simonides. Right. And then Book 10. Yeah. I'm not done with those punks <laughs> right. you know right, let's right. go back and right. it, I, I realize how complicated it gets uh, um, but I think it's more schematically organized than sometimes the yeah. destabilization of the arguments against the uh, mimetic poets who appeal to pleasure uh, sometimes suggest uh, but no one seems to agree, <laughs> <laughs> agree with me but nevertheless uh, he's having that contestation as well Yeah, and He's having that for those in his immediate and uh, immediate present and near future. So I think what I want to say, and you've really helped me clarify this, is that I want to write in a way which can maybe have both of those moments, can maybe be responsive to equal to the moment which might be present, but not reducible to the moment. Right. And I that, think that, that I mean, it, to me
0: that, seems to
1: me like. I mean, I think that that's would be part part pretty kick Yeah. That,
0: <laughs> well, I think that's something that is. Uh, we'll put explicit on the other. But, Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I no think that's something, <laughs> that's something that uh, that you know could be a characteristic of excellent philosophical writing that it ha- I mean, uh, to put, uh, put, to use a term that I don't really necessarily want to embrace, but there's a timelessness to it. Namely, n- not that it's, because I don't want to use it because timelessness means it's outside. It's of not time. eternal. It's, 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 a, it's a, a temporal timelessness in the sense that it's fully embedded in the time in which it's written yeah. and to the moment in which it's written. And yet it also speaks to the yeah. uh, secret reader's the secret addresses um, yeah. who uh, come upon it and resonate with it. And I'm wondering, actually, I mean, I I said, well, you know, Plato at least had the sense that he's writing to other humans. Yeah, okay, fine. But, I mean, also, th- there may be a way as, as <laughs> I mean, I don't know how evolution and all of that's going to happen, but there's going to be, you know, probably beings capable of reading, that are no longer kind of humans that might be able to parse the texts of Plato and other texts in ways that count, at, that, that are uh, provocative and insightful or um,
1: transformative. Yeah. Or it, or it may at a certain point just be, un- leave. Yeah. It, right. But well, it,
0: there may be, it may, may be, no longer it be It may part become of so
1: alien that it just yeah, doesn't meet. There's Just like no it was probably if we went for earlier back in history. Right. They're not like nice rock. Right. But exactly. don't throw a dialogue on it. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so the beginning of my Emerson book, though, is all about the time signature of taking Emerson as my contemporary. Yeah. And I, I try to say, it's not timeless, but right. there's the eternal now. Uh-huh. Because you receive it in the now of its address. Because there's a present to an, an intersubjective address. Right. Hey, Chris. Right. You know, so that, does, does that mean when, when we take it up to read it, it is now again? It is now again. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So there's a kind of, and I try to connect this up with Benjamin and the yet site, which Uh is the moment in which all things are citable. So, um, but yeah, I'm. So, but I don't. One of the things I'm interested in always is avoiding, in a non-Hegelian way, what I think are stalemates in current oppositions. So, one of the stalemates it would be between the. I'm instrumentally involved in my present or I'm doing philosophy right like I want to say both right Yeah. and we just tried to talk right. through I, in a way that was productive for me, me too. how to how to somehow hold those two together in right. a non-cheating way right um, another one is for example uh, performativity versus doctrine mm-hmm. so one of the things I sent you I try to say you know, if you want to give a purely performative reading of Platonic dialogues and look at the conduct of Socrates as performing a philosophical ethos, that, though, is right, tied to the doctrine of what an ethos is that's admirable. Mm-hmm.
2: You know? So mm-hmm. it's a
1: doctrine which leads one to write in a way which accentuates certain performances, yeah. Right and so I mean I don't know. I, just, I, mean, I don't want to sometimes, I sometimes I'm just tired of this idea like oh that like Plato has no commitments it's no, all no. but
0: okay but a commitment is different from a doctrine
1: I think right? okay so, so, all so, right wait, I'll wait, let you yeah so you'll let me get away with that. I'll let I you mean let because me. I but do wait, I think there's wait, there's wait, tea, wait.
0: I would say there's teachings would, Plato has teachings he he has teachings and and yeah, and, but, and, okay. and and, and there I mean um, the the problem with the word doctrine from my perspective is that it presumes um, a kind of certainty and a kind of static nature to things that I I think... That's okay. I didn't mean it in that way, but I see what you're saying. So, I mean, uh, if you have... It's hilarious, though, that
1: you distinguish teachings and doctrine when the Heidegger essay with Lera, which is teaching gets translated as doctrine. Right, right, right. right. Now that's I'm I'm all... uh, Yeah, all I meant was... There are substantive commitments. Yes. Which and, one and could I mean, interrogate and challenge.
0: Absolutely. And I think one of That are
1: encoded things. in performativity. Right. And so when people say, oh, you need to read this performatively, not in terms of thematic content, I want to say, like, what oh. are you some kind you, of you, joker?
0: You, yeah, you have to. But so, like, for example, let's take the theory of the so called theory of the form. Let's take yeah. the, the way in which Socrates uh, hypothetically posits forms and then claims that you have to take them as if they were real. Right. Because I think he be, he thinks Socrates thinks, and I think Plato is actually committed to this that taking the good as real will have a transformative effect on our relationships with one another. Yeah, the, the question of whether it is real or not, whether we can possess a full account, a determinate account of the good, is something that Socrates himself claims he doesn't ever have, and then the, the knowledge of ignorance is, I think, part of that. Uh, and I don't. Yeah, think and his Pla- diamond is
1: going off if he would try to say I, exactly. that he did. Yeah.
0: So, and and I think Plato's committed to the same thing. Right. I think he's committed to the need to posit a, a good, a, the the good, the just, the true, and the rec- the need to recognize that they re- something of them always remains elusive, even if we have access to something of them. Can I give? Yeah. Can yeah, I yeah. give an example? Yeah. yeah. And just
1: reading this. So I'm with you. Uh, completely and there's this weird line in book six where the idea is, whatever the true is, yeah. that we can actually have a mimetic relation to it. Yeah. That the soul should have a right. memetic relation. Right, to right. It. And I think So what does it mean then to, to have a memetic relation to something that's as yet not finished? Yeah. So well, part let, of it is this finish. philosophical questioning. Exactly. Yeah. And so after he says Glaucon, yeah. right? Right. Guess what? I, I think these guys who write romantic poems of people wailing uh, and engaging in licentious behavior uh, and do so in a way which stimulates the uh, irritable part of the soul as opposed to the rational part of the soul should probably get the boot (laughs) and should you meet people who claim that Homer is the father of Greece and a useful guide in the good life. I hope you will recount what we have just here agreed. Right. Pretty strong. Right, yeah. And then he says, but there is an ancient quarrel. <laughs> and, should they have a chance to give an account of themselves in verse, you know, or right. in meter, right? right? And we are so persuaded they will be admitted back to the city and it is only just that they are. Uh-huh. Or if the lovers of poetry give us an account. So, Part of Exactly. Yeah. Part of being mimetic yeah. to a phenomenon which is unfinished is that the rational part of the soul acknowledges its unfinished right. nature. And that gets performed, I right. think, in the way in which I think, with non ironic yeah. intensity, Homer's given a beatdown. Yeah. Other modes of, of poesis are allowed right. myth of air, which is more or less narrative. And fits the model in Book Three mm-hmm. about what's admissible. Uh, but I mean, I think that's so what
0: animates a dialogue. A philosoph- the, uh, why write a dialogue? Because you're trying to uh, cultivate a mimetic
1: attitude toward the, the elusive but accessible good. Which is why the weird thing. I just had an amazing class with my students. So yeah. They're all freshmen, and I'm like, and I'm asking them, like, so we just booted the mimetic poets. Right. And we get the myth of error, but it's mostly narrative. Right. The problem yeah. is this is a mimetic text. Yeah, exactly What are we gonna do? And they were like ah! But they kinda were like, wait, but I said, Well what is it mimetic of? Right. And then they're like, Well it's not a wailing. No, it's a Socrates It's, a, made it's beautiful and new. It's it's mimesis of people struggling yeah. you know, to orient their yeah. lives around the whatever wherever the argument leads, wherever the rational speech takes them. Right. Um, and secondly, it stimulates that part in us. Right. Unlike stimulating the wailing part. We're like, I feel so bad. <laughs> <laughs> killings. Okay. Or I laugh, you know, like, ah, oh, what a buffoon. <laughs> okay. You know? Yeah. So, I mean, so I think yeah, that idea, uh, of a writing which is performing. Right. Something. Right. It's performing it because there's, there's a conception. There's, there, com- there's commitment. Which yeah. could be put in a different way. Right. Um. Yeah. And I just, so, I, I, all I'm, what I'm trying to get at is sometimes I think they're unhelpful oppositions, forming content, uh, teaching, performativity. <laughs> uh-huh. And my view is those need to be undone. Right. But I don't want to, you know, my view, like the whole head on, like, I'm going to beat this, <laughs> overcome this opposition. Right. It's like, let's just work it. And all of a sudden at the end, someone finds themselves like, I, I no longer even. Right. am able to draw this opposition except to render more salient a moment in a larger dynamic whole, exactly. Which is, I think, the goal of Hegelian thought. <laughs> but I don't want right. to, you know, like dialectical reversals. <laughs> right. Cover well, with Zizekian saliva. Exactly. Well...
0: With uh, the gesture towards Zizaki and saliva, I think we <laughs> we need to uh, <coughs> bring our uh, digital dialogue uh, to an end for today. This Although awesome. it has been great to have yeah. you again on the dialogue, and I think we are planning to have a, another uh, episode of this at some point, either at the APA later in the semester or when my book comes out, and you can do a flipped one. Excellent. And we can uh, have an ongoing conversation. I. Uh, you know, our conversations uh, are always uh, enriching to me and uh, one of the reasons why I'm really grateful to have you as a friend and a, a philosophical friend.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I like you independently. Uh, yeah, too. well, exactly.
0: So uh, this has been... So I will
1: never say that, uh, you know, you know, we love our friends, but we love the truth more. Right, exactly.
0: Well, especially when they resonate with they one resonate, another, like, like well. we do. But this has been. <laughs> it's been great. This has been the Digital Dialogue. The Digital Dialogue is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share and share alike license. You can find all the episodes of the Digital Dialogue on www.cplong.org where you're invited to listen and leave comments and engage with other listeners. The Digital Dialogue also has a Facebook page at www.facebook.com slash digital dialogue. This has been the Digital Dialogue.